Yeah, today is looking at teaching and teachers. Um, and we've looked at prophets and we've looked at the different, some of the different roles. But today it's fallen on teaching and I thought it's really important. It's, it's really important because what we allow to be taught to us is what people see. Um, a little story. Years and years ago, in my teens, I had this little blip of about six months when um, I was really influenced by um, gothic music and The Cure. And, um, and I was allowing it to go in. And it's the only six months in my life when I either haven't been brown or blonde and I went black, dyed my hair black. And um, there was no such, well, there weren't straighteners then, so I was black dreadlocks, which was, I don't think anybody else had that look, but I was a black dreadlocked gothic. And um, when Mark and I got married for our wedding reception, we thought we would do a seating plan and we'd do knives and forks and we'd find the most embarrassing photograph of everybody and we'd put their picture where they had to sit at the reception. And obviously we went along with that and so I found this photograph of me with like thick black eyeliner and dark purple lipstick and black shiny back-combed dreadlocks. And um, that was where I was on the top table, you know, for the wedding. Years later, we were emptying out the loft and we were moving house and we had Louis and he was only a little toddler and um, I, we, we've still got it actually, we, we kept the board with all the photographs on. And Louis said, Mum, Mum, what's that? And I said, oh, I said, well, we, me and your dad got married. We, we picked the most embarrassing photograph we could of everybody and that was where they had to sit. And he said, oh, where were you, Mum? And I said, I sat there. And he looked at the photograph and he said, well, you never told me you worked in a circus. <laughs> so, what we allowed to go in, people see. That was a manifestation of what I was allowing to be taught to me. This is now the crucifixes for me. This is a visual representation of what I allowed to go in. So what we allow to be taught us is hugely important. And um, I looked at scripture, and it identifies lots of people as teachers. Levitical priests, Moses, the apostles, fellow believers, Nicodemus. Um, but then I thought about it and I thought, there's only one master teacher, and that's Jesus. So what I'm going to do today, I'm not going to do my usual intro, four or five bullet points, conclusion. You're all guinea pigs. I'm just going to do teaching through the eyes of a teacher. So it's just going to flow like that. And I looked at um, Jesus and his teaching, um, and I'll be honest, I did actually write 10 pages. I only printed off four because I really got into it. But I looked at the different ways that Jesus taught. Jesus taught using imagery, the news of the day, parables, lectures, question and answer sessions, compare and contrast sessions, metaphors, provocative language, exaggeration, and he even set homework. Godly attribute, homework. Um, whatever it took to get his message over when he was discipling people, he used it. Different occasions, different people, different instances, different methods, different vehicles of delivery. So I thought I would teach through some of those vehicles of delivery. So, imagery. In Luke chapter 7, Verses 31 to 32. 
it talks about the religious leaders and it talks about John the Baptist. You'll have to forgive me, I've printed off my wrong set of notes. So, okay, we'll do it. Luke chapter seven, verses one, verses 31 to 32. Okay, so Jesus is talking to the people and he says, to what can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace. They call out to each other. We play the pipe for you and you do not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner but wisdom is proved right by her children. The reality is John the Baptist comes with a message from God and people look at him and they say, well look at him, he's so self-disciplined, simplistic, non-indulgent, sat there in his clothes, in his his camel skin kind of um, clothing. He can't be of God. And then Jesus says, and equally, you look at me and you say, well look at him, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. He even mixes with sinners and tax collectors. That can't be of God. And he's comparing the people listening to him. When you're like children, like neither will do. And he uses imagery sometimes when he wants to get his message over. (coughs) Jesus also used the news of the day to get his message over. In Luke chapter 13, verse four, Jesus is talking I'll start at verse one actually, and I'll give you the context. It says, there were some present at that time who had told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And in effect, what he does is, he takes the news of the day. The... um, Pilate had basically been pulled up for an incident that he hadn't dealt with very well in Samaria. And he then overreacted. And then when there were some sacrifices being made, he ordered that these people be, well in effect, be martyred. And this would have been the gossip. This would have been what everybody was talking about. And, and Jesus is talking to them, basically saying, you're, at, you're almost like you're asking me, are these people holier because they've died a martyred death? And then he compares it to the Tower of Siloam. And part of the Jerusalem wall had collapsed and 18 people had had been crushed by it. And he's saying, are they any less godly? And he's using the events and the topics that people would have been talking about and he's using those to make the point. And he's saying the bottom line is, everybody has to face God on Judgment Day. Everybody is accountable. Everybody has to sit before the mercy seat and they give an, account, give an account to God. And he uses the news and the events of what people would have been chatting about in the marketplaces to make the point. Parables. In Mark chapter four, we have the parable of the sower. 
Everybody knows the parable of the sower. Some seed landed on the path, some seed landed on shallow soil, and it sprouted, and then when the sun came out, it withered back down. Some of it landed in the, on the rocks, and the birds pecked it and took it away, and some of it landed in good soil. Another method of teaching that Jesus used was the parables. And they're so simple, but aren't they so effective? And another way that, that to connect with people, he, he used this imagery of these parables to, to get his point over. Lectures. Jesus also taught in lecture situations. And the classic one I felt was Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is giving the end time talk and he's hitting them with really hard stuff. This is what it's going to be like at the end times. These things are going to happen. He talks about the temple, you know, their beloved temple. It would have been, you know, he's saying it's going to crash, it's going to come down, it's not going to be here. And, and it's a bit like us with St. Paul's or, or you, know, you know, think of somewhere big. It, it, this is big news and sometimes people have just got to sit down and they've just got to absorb the information. And Jesus would sit in this, it would stand on a mountainside and he would give, in effect, a lecture and he would teach his point through a lecture. But equally, on the other side, he would also do question answers. The Nicodemus chapter that I put up, he, he has this, he would do this one-to-one question and answer situation. You know, Nicodemus went to him in the middle of the night. Basically, he said, how can somebody be born again when they are old? And Jesus answers him one-to-one. And then he gives him this lovely long answer and explains it. And Nicodemus goes back with, so how can this be? Like, it hasn't gone in, it hasn't, it hasn't, he still hasn't got it. And they have this ping pong, this one-to-one. And Jesus is discipling and his teaching is personal. And it's almost a bipolar to the big lecture scenario. It's like, it's a one-to-one. Jesus uses um, compare and contrast techniques. Um, in Luke chapter seven, verse 44, jump back a bit. Have I got it? Luke chapter 7, yeah, verse 44. I'll read, you the, I'll read you the scripture. Jesus is talking to Simon. Jesus says, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Which one of them did he lo- which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, "Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven." "You have judged correctly," Jesus said. But then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman here? I came into your house, this is Simon's house, and you did not give me any water for my feet." but she has wet wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered, from the time I have entered this house has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is pulling Simon up. 
And the way he's teaching him of, of his lack of hospitality is this compare and contrast. Here you are, Simon, I walked in your house, but you didn't greet me with a kiss. She did. You didn't give me any water for my feet to wash my feet. She has. And he's comparing Simon's lack of hospitality to this woman's overflowing show of love. And he's, and he's, and he's, he's comparing and contrasting. And Simon is one of, one of those items, one of those people he's, compare, he's using in the compare and contrast. But he's using it to make the point that she's showing him all the love and you've let me into your house and you haven't welcomed me properly. So Jesus teaches through compare and contrast. Jesus also teaches using metaphors. Very short one, one of my favorite ones. John chapter nine, verse five. I am the light of the world. I'm not big into high church and candles everywhere, but I love that when I sit in my kitchen and I light a candle and I want to pray, that it just focuses me. And it just draws me to Jesus and it draws my mind to Jesus. And I just love that it's just something little, but every time it helps me connect. Jesus uses provocative language sometimes when he teaches, on quite a few occasions actually. In Luke chapter 13, verses 32, I'll just find it, chapter 13, verses 32. It says, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replies, you go tell that fox, I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. And that was quite provocative. It's like, I don't know, it's like Theresa May, you know, phoning up um, Catherine and the bachelor saying, or, or, or Graham and saying, oh, we'd like to hold a, a Tory party conference for locals and we'd like to hold it in the, in the Baptist church and could we please borrow your venue? And then going back and, I don't know, going back and saying, you, you glorified housewife, I don't think so, da, da, da. And it was really provocative. And, and you know, Herod was meant to be um, respected and Jesus is, 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 he just pushes him, he just pushes that button and he makes the point and he uses provocative language to do that. Not the first occasion. Matthew chapter 12, verses 48. The disciples go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your mothers and your brothers are outside. They want you. Jesus says, who are my mothers and brothers? Who is my mother and brothers? These are my sisters and brothers in the house in front of me who are listening to me. Now, you know, tad provocative, really. Um, again, when he's serving um, at the uh, wedding at a um, in Canaan, when, when, he's, uh, when Mary says, you know, they've run out of wine, turn the water into wine, Jesus says, woman, woman, why are you asking me? It's not my time yet. Jesus uses provocative language to make a point. Exaggeration, another thing Jesus uses. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Possibly not the most politically correct teaching skill that you could pull out of the box nowadays, but he does so, doesn't he, to make the point, he, and he often does this, he often exaggerates a point and takes it to an extreme to get the message over, 
to get them to think, to think something through a bit more. And homework. Jesus set homework. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, find it and I'll read it for you. There's a question and answer scenario. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not to call the right, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He asks them to go and Think about it, to go and do it. He gives the answer to the homework in chapter 12, verse seven. Flip over to it, chapter 12, verse seven. And the implication is that they actually hadn't done the homework because Jesus says, if you had learned what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The reality is that the Pharisees were promoting the sacrificial system, and that was giving them a job to do, and that was making them important. And if they, if, if, if they had stopped that, if they had, if they had pulled away from that, then, then their roles would have become null and void. They, would, they, would have, they wouldn't have had a role to have done. But Jesus is saying, you're pushing that, but that's not really what God wants. God wants mercy. And if you think about it, if everybody, if everybody extended mercy, there'd be no more strife in the world. If everybody who, 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 who caused you pain, you forgave, and you didn't, you didn't retaliate, you didn't give any revenge to, then there'd be, no, there'd be no fighting. If one country upset another country and they didn't retaliate, there'd be no wars. You know, God gives grace, a gift that we don't deserve, he gives us, and mercy is when somebody does deserve something, you don't do it. And, and God desires mercy. And if we all showed mercy, how much better would the world be? Jesus says that the logical end of effective teaching is that the pupil becomes like the teacher. In Luke chapter six, verse 40, it says the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So the reality is if Jesus uses all these different methods to disciple people, to teach them, to get the point over, then I think it stands to reason then for us, we can use all sorts of different methods when discipling people, when, going, when drawing alongside them, when sharing the gospel with them. Different things suit different occasions. Different things are more appropriate with different people. If you say, oh well, I try and share the gospel or I try, and, but it doesn't get over, perhaps something needs to be tweaked about how we share it, about how we, about how we get the message over. You know, at the moment, these sermons are on harvest. They're not sowing sermons. They're, they're sermons on harvest to, to say, go out there, mix with people, share the word. Share the word. Um, it hit Mark and I quite recently how much of our social circle were all Christians and that actually our interactiveness with non-Christians 
had, had, had kind of had, had come right down and it shrunk right down. And virtually everybody that we met, whether it was for coffee, whether it was for a meal, whatever it was, they were already Christians because they were already our Christian mates. And we said, well, that's good, that's healthy, that's supportive of each other, but actually, that's not us going out. So in the interest of that, we now go down the pub every Friday and Saturday night. But the point being, we go in there and we talk about Jesus. Everybody in that pub, virtually, that knows us, knows that we're Christians, knows that we come to church on a Sunday, asks us questions. We even get texts now off them. So in scripture, you said it says this, what does this mean? And sometimes it's appropriate to sit at a table over a pint and chat. Sometimes it's appropriate to text a message back, to text a thought for the day. Different vehicles to connect with different people. I think as well, variety kept Jesus' message fresh. I think the fact that he used all these different ways made it, kept it alive, kept, kept the message real. Um, this, the book Michael, that Michael, the Michael Frost book that Graham's encouraging us um, to read and, 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 and they go out and they eat with people, they're all different ways of connecting with people and they're all different ways of kind of getting people's attention before sharing with them. I put down, the reality is, if you had the cure, to, cure for cancer, you wouldn't keep it a secret. And Jesus is the cure for life. Don't keep him a secret. Go out there and share him. Learn from the master teacher and then become teachers yourselves. Pass it on. Watch what goes in and then make sure that you then give it back out. Thank you.